0: and i would invite you to take your bibles and turn to the book of joel in your new testament or old testament you won't find it in your new testament book of joel we're going to actually get ourselves through the entire book today now this first i'm going to start out here and it's going to surprise you i was at home depot one day i'm at home depot almost daily uh, in fact, one day I was there and the, well, actually yesterday I was there a couple of times and went there at one point to pick up something and then went back later in the afternoon and the, the gal that had been at the checkout for the first time had moved back to the garden center. I walked up, I said, lucky you, you get me two days, two, two times in the same day. So I'm always at Home Depot, but I was there one day and I happened upon an acquaintance. And, you know, we had those normal exchanges of, uh, hey, how's it going, pleasantries and all like that. And he asked me about my family. I asked him about his. And finally I said, well, how are you doing? And he said, you know, this has been a really, really rough year for me. I said, really, What well, what's going on? And he began to tell me that, for the past year, he had been fighting cancer. Now, this was an individual that I had known. He, was, he had retired from a very successful career. He had been very, he's been very active in his retirement, uh, had even played basketball here on Monday nights with a bunch of guys back in the day when there were some pickup games going on. And for the past year, he'd been fighting cancer. He told me about the severe pain in his back and the the surgery that had to take place to remove a a tumor. He told me about how he had been frustrated by the loss of energy and, and the loss of hair. He said there were days when he just hated life. He said there were times when he felt God was right there next to him, walking with him every step of the way. And there were times when he felt God was so far away. And then he looked at me and he said, but here's, something that I heard years ago that really helps me day in and day out. God is too wise to make a mistake. God is too kind to do something cruel. God is too deep to have to explain himself to me. Man, I thought about that as I walked away that morning. I wondered myself, would I be able to have that kind of honesty and and that kind of grace were I to go through something like that? How do you respond? How do you respond when things happen in your life that we would call bad things? How do you respond when bad things occur in our world? I mean, you think about it. We're still not fully out of a global pandemic. We hear daily of atrocities in Ukraine. We passed the 100 day mark of the war in Ukraine. We're not yet a week removed, or just over a week removed, from the tragedy in Uvalde, Texas. They're still burying people from that tragedy. We hear of wildfires out west. We're entering hurricane season. We're in tornado season. And we're all feeling the effects of inflation and higher prices. How do you respond? Sometimes it's easy to grouse at the politicians. Sometimes we've got to look for somebody to blame. Sometimes we're we're thankful that we don't live where the circumstances are really that bad. Sometimes we even kind of breathe a prayer of thanks that at least my family and I are okay, which I think is sometimes a little bit of a selfish response. Uh, My heart should be broken for someone else who's struggling. Sometimes we say, well, God's judging that place or that person, but who are we? to determine God's judgment. Maybe, maybe, and and, and we're tempted sometimes to ask the question, why, aren't we? Why me, God? Why this? But maybe that's not the right question. Maybe we need to look at all all that's going around us. Maybe we need to look at, at the brokenness of our world. Maybe we need to look at the tragedies we see. Maybe we need to ask what I believe the question the prophet Joel was asking. And it's this, God, what do you want to say to me or to us at this point in our life? We don't know much about the prophet Joel. We, we know that he was the son of Pethuel, and we don't even know who that is. That's all we know about Joel. We don't really know exactly when he prophesied. We can surmise. Scholars have done a lot of work. They've done a lot of comparison. And it's probably that he prophesied during the early reign of a king by the name of Joash, Who reigned in Judah? Joel's Joel's prophecy is for Judah, that southern part of the kingdom when it divided. The the story of Joash is in 2 Kings 11 and 12. He became the king at seven years old. Imagine that. (laughs) I would have loved to have been king at seven years old. Uh, But since he was so young, there was a priest, a godly priest named Jehoiada, and Jehoiada kind of managed things for the young king and mentored the young king. When he came of age, Joash is known for a lot of things. One, he's known for following the Lord uh, till the end, and things got dicey at the end, but he's also known for learning about and then repairing the temple. The temple had had been in disarray for years, And that fact alone shows us what the people and the leaders had, that the people and the leaders had grown complacent. They had become complacent in their worship of God. They had become complacent in following Him. And I think Joel speaks to this complacency, and he's going to use a phrase called the day of the Lord. And one thing to bear in mind is the day of the Lord, we sometimes think of that this final day sometime in the future when God's going to judge. But the day of the Lord is also used time and again for God's immediate stepping in, God's immediate judgment. And in Joel chapter one, Joel describes two awful natural events that devastated the land and should have caused God's people to step back and say, "Whoa, God, what do you want to say to us through this? We'll pick it up in verse two. Joel writes, hear this, you elders. Listen, all who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? Tell it to your children. Let your children tell it to their children and their children to the next generation. What the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. What the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. Joel is speaking. This is prophecy, first of all, that is forth telling. He's not predicting the future. He's spe- speaking into an event. Apparently, a locust swarm had come through and had devastated all of the crops, nothing was left. And Joel is saying, wake up, people. This is one of those events. This is one of those events that you'll tell your children and and your grandchildren will hear about and your great-grandchildren will hear about. This has been devastating. Wake up, listen, all you who live in the land. Now, we believe, and we see that near the end of, uh, about the middle of chapter 1, going into the end of chapter 1, that following that devastation of the locusts, there was a drought. And so this agricultural community that depended upon vineyards and barley and wheat and olives and all for their, for not only their Livestock, but also for their own livelihood to trade and to get things. It's devastated. And Joel, Joel says, wake up. This is a day of the Lord. God wants to say something to us. We're going to see that he'll look forward to another day and he's, he has another invading army, and it's a metaphor for the, the locusts or a metaphor for the army of the Assyrians that will eventually come down. We, like God's people, have two choices when we face cataclysmic events. We can look back at the prophecies like the, and do what the Dacian did. The nation looked at what Joel said, they they heard Joel, he spoke, and he's probably one of the first writing minor prophets, so they could hear it, they could read it, and they shrugged their shoulders and kind of went, "Eh, whatever, and they just went on with life. Or we can say, God, what, what are you saying to us? We can look at everything going on in our world, and we can... Point fingers or we can go, eh, you know, it's just life happens. Or we can say, God, is there a message for me here? Is there a message for me here? The prophet, we've already seen it. He addresses several groups of people that are affected by the locust plague. He addresses the elders and all the people. So he starts with the leadership and all the people. He said, We've never experienced anything like this before. And then, and so he describes the devastation that we've just read. And then he goes to a different group of people, verse three, wake up, or verse five, wake up, you drunkards, and weep. Wail, all drinkers of wine, wail because of the new wine, for it has been snatched from your lips. And I agree with those who would say what he's probably addressing here is not the alcoholics, he's addressing those people who live for pleasure. The, the metaphor of wine is a symbol of pleasure. And all of a sudden, what you've lived for, the pleasure you've lived for, is gone. Because the crops are gone. The vineyards are gone. There's no wine left. But then he goes down and, and, and he says, and he, he uses, the, again, that metaphor, verse 6, a nation, a mighty armor without army without number, has the teeth of a lion, this These locusts have come and and although they're a swarm, they seem so organized and they've just come through, they've wiped everything out. And he says to the priest, mourn like a virgin in sackcloth, grieving for the betrothed of her youth. Grain offerings and drink offerings are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests are in mourning, those who minister before the Lord. The fields are ruined, the ground is dried up, the grain is destroyed, the new wine is dried up, the olive Oil fails. The priests can no longer conduct worship the way that it is prescribed for them in the Old Testament, in the law, because they don't have the items they need. ...to conduct worship. They don't have the olive oil. They don't have the grain for the offerings. They don't have the wine for the drink offerings. They should mourn. And then he points to the farmers in verses 11 and 12. They've lost everything. They have lost absolutely everything. And that leads the prophet to call for a lament... ...beginning in verse 13. "...put on sackcloth, you priests, and mourn. Wail, you who minister before the altar..." Come, spend the night in sackcloth, you who minister before my God. Declare a holy fast, verse 14. There's this lament. Why? Because this is a day of the Lord, verse 15. For the day of the Lord is near. As I thought about this chapter, as I thought about the, the devastation of this chapter, Verses 19 and 20 talk about the, the, everything being burned up, the idea of drought. I keep coming back to a very clear, simple principle. I think one thing God wants to say to us anytime we face devastating things is simply this. Don't take God's provision for granted. Everything you and I have, I've said this so many times, Everything that we have, it's it's a gift of God. The fact that we breathe air is a gift of God. The fact that we woke up this morning is a gift of God. Everything. Don't take God's provision for granted. Enjoy what God gives you now, but don't take it for granted. Don't think it's your right. We used to say to our kids all the time, you don't have many rights, but you have a lot of privileges. Don't take God's provision for granted. The late Dr. Warren Rearsby made this application. He said, too often we drift along from day to day, taking our blessings for granted until God permits a natural calamity to occur and remind us of our dependence on him. Our world says we are, and you fill in the blank. Back in the day, it was Boston strong when the the bombing happened there, or, or we're Colorado strong, but it's all about, I can rebuild, I can rebuild. Maybe it ought to be, we're God strong, and God gives, and God takes away, and I depend on him and him alone. Oh, I know, to lose your stuff is is, is horrible. We've... In a variety of ways, we've seen that in our own lives, to give up something, to lose something, but, but the reality is my life isn't in my stuff. My life is in my relationship with a God who loves me and showed that love through Christ. A plague of locusts and a lack of rain should have been enough to remind the people that they are dependent on God and what God would desire is that you and I, just like them, would daily remember everything we have is by his hand we worship and praise him daily for his provision, regardless of whether we think it's too meager or regardless of whether we have abundance. When we get to chapter 2 of, of the book of Joel, he switches and you have to read between the lines because now that, that army of locusts is now becomes a metaphor for another army. And verses 1 through 11 is a warning. It begins with, blow the trumpet in Zion, sound the alarm on my holy hill. The trumpet was always that, that alarm. We, you know, around here, if you can hear them you know, sometimes, and at 10 o'clock, in fact, uh, yeah, it's just next, this Tuesday at 10 o'clock, you'll hear them. The, 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 the sirens will go off, kind of testing that they're, that they're working and everything. So, you know, if you hear them... Then they become that warning to say, oh, you need to take shelter. Well, the same was true with the trumpet in the ancient days. When you heard the trumpet, that was an alarm. Something's happening. Something, we, that's a call to arms. We either need to get to the wall or we need to be in shelter. Something's happening. He says, sound the trumpet. You need to tremble because the day of the Lord is coming. Wait, I thought the locusts were the day of the Lord. Yes, they were. Another day of the Lord is coming. Another time when God's going to call you to account. And he talks about this, verse 2, A large, mighty army comes, such as there was never in ancient times. And they're going to come through, and they're going to have, the, uh, have horses. They're going to gallop like cavalry, chariots. They're going to charge like warriors. The earth is going to shake. It's going to tremble. He describes this army. Now, Many scholars believe he's describing what was in future view of the Assyrian army. And the Assyrians were a war-mongering people. And Joel reminds his people, this is happening, this is going to happen. But then what's so cool in this whole thing is there is an opportunity. He reminds them that the day of the Lord is great, it's dreadful, you can't endure it, verse 11. But in verse 12, he says this. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart with fasting and weeping and mourning, rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. He relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing, grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. As we survey history, we know that at this point in time in Judah's history, worship had been largely external. They were going through the motions. There was no heart change. And so what you see here is this reminder, rend your heart. In other words, it's, it's, it's about what's deep in you. Sure, you can tear your garments as a sign of mourning, but if it hasn't gotten deep inside you then it's just ripping up clothes it doesn't matter sure you can bring offerings to the priest but if it doesn't make a difference here in your heart then you're just burning up animals or burning up grain or dumping wine out but you're not making a difference here and and what God says is there's an opportunity to avoid this calamity there's an opportunity to avoid this hoarding army what's the opportunity return to me You see, what what God desires most, the second thing that I see here is God desires a true heart worship, not just external rituals. That invading army, the prophet is saying, is God's rod of correction. But you can stem the rod of correction. You can put it off if you turn back to God. He is a God that forgives. He is a God that is compassion. And if he warns you that judgment is coming and you take the warning and you heed it and you change your lives, then God says, I may back off on that. Notice at the very end of this section, beginning in verse 17, The prophet says this, let the priests who minister before the Lord weep between the portico and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, Lord. Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the prophets, among the peoples, where is your God? His call is, why should the people who don't believe in God look at people who call themselves God's people and go, Where's your God? Do the people I interact with on a daily basis know just simply by the way I conduct my life that I depend on God? Or do people look at you and me and go, what's the difference? What's the difference between you and anybody else out on the street? Statistics are very sad. When you look at some of the behaviors of people who call themselves Christians compared with some of the behaviors of people who call themselves non-religious, don't have a religion, some of our habits, some of our mindsets, some of our attitudes, very much the same. See, true worship of God that comes from the heart that draws you and me to him should make a difference in our lives than the fact that it would be seen by others. False worship, just external exercise that I make optional when I feel like it. True heart worship makes a difference at the very core of our being. Why should the people say among themselves, where is their God? In chapter 18 of or chapter 2, verse 18, all the way up through chapter 2, verse 27, a lot of scholars believe that should be at its its own chapter, it shouldn't be just lumped in. Because it's 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 God speaking through the prophet. And, and, and it's it's God's response to repentance. And God's response to repentance, verse 18, is to take pity on his people. God's response when we repent is is to restore to restore relationship and it's seen in the word picture verse 19 I'm sending you new grain new wine and olive oil enough to satisfy you fully never again will I make you an object of scorn to the nations I will drive the northern horde far from you pushing it into a parched and barren land. Its eastern ranks will drown in the Dead Sea. So this idea is God is going to destroy this army. And you know what? You can go to the book of Isaiah and you can read about King Hezekiah and how the Assyrian army was surrounding Jerusalem and they were just kind of staying there and they were blockading everything and Hezekiah went and because they came and they said this is what we're going to do and they sent him a letter he takes that letter he lays it before the Lord and he cries out and the Lord destroys that army I mean there's no explanation for it they went out and they were the whole Assyrian army that was there woke up dead they were they were there was nobody there They they were just wiped out. God did that. And so he's saying, you know, God's going to do that. So don't be afraid. God has done great things. And he goes down in animals. Don't be afraid. Pastures, wilderness, don't be afraid. Be glad because Lord is going to give you autumn rains again. He's going to restore everything. In In verse 25, I love this. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. The great locusts and the young locusts and the other locusts and the locust swarm, my great army that I sent among you. You will have plenty to eat until you are full, and you will praise the name of the Lord your God who worked, has worked wonders for you. Never again will my people be shamed. Then you will know that I am in Israel, that I am your, the Lord your God, and there is no other. Never again will my people be shamed. A couple of things that just stand out, and I like that, I love that line. You will have, you will have. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. You know, I've heard too many people sit down and go, well, it's just too late for me. I've already made a whole mess of my life. I, you know, and, and you know what? I've seen the other side of that I've seen people come and they've put their life back in God's hands they've asked for forgiveness. maybe in their life it has been coming in that initial step of faith, putting their faith in the cross of Jesus Christ who died on the cross for their sins and God can't give you the time he won't give you the time back I mean you if you're you know if you're 60 years old and you come to know Christ you're still 60 years old you don't revert back to 30. You know, but what he does do is he redeems that time. Maybe you have even more opportunity to influence others, more opportunity to speak into others' lives. God does that in a way that we just can't fully describe. He said, I'll repay you for that. But the bigger lesson is simply this. When, it, when God does his work in our lives, he says, then you will know that I am the Lord your God. Do you know that today with certainty? Because I think the lesson that I, that, that I hear God saying here through Joel is simply this, take God at his word and realize there is none other. I am the Lord your God, there is no other. You know, and, and it's so easy for us to have Other gods. I'm not talking about an idol that you put on a shelf. There are so many ways that we can replace God. And we need to know that he is the Lord. He is God. There is no other. There is no one else to worship. There is nothing else to worship. He is the only one who can redeem my life. He is the only one who can repay us for the years the locusts have eaten out of our lives. In the final part of chapter 2, moving into chapter 3, the prophet looks ahead. All the way to this point, the prophet has been speaking largely about the circumstances they've faced and the lessons they can learn, but now he, ve- he very much looks forward. And, and and what he's looking forward to is after there's been repentance, after there's been a returning to the Lord, then here's what God will do. And afterward, verse twenty-eight, and this is the passage we heard read this morning, both in Joel and in Acts. I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons, your daughters. Your old men, your sons and daughters will prophesy. Old men will dream dreams. Young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I want you to notice very carefully in those early going, there is no limit. There is no limit upon who receives and expresses the message of God's spirit. Very important to see that. It's everybody. Sons, daughters, old men, young men, men, women. God's spirit is for everyone. And that that is emphasized so much in verse 32, a verse that not only did Peter use in, in Acts 2, but if you read Romans 10, the apostle Paul uses it again. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's everyone. There are no limits to that. There are, there's, there's, there's no way to kind of narrow that down. Well, everyone but. No, it's everyone. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For the people who heard or read Joel's words some eight centuries before Jesus, that promise was real. For the the people who heard Peter's message quoting the prophet Joel 50 days after Passover, that we called Pentecost, and for some today is Pentecost Sunday, those words were true. For you and me, 2,000 years later, those words are true. When we call on the name of the Lord, what does that mean? What does it mean to call on the name of the Lord? To call on the name of the Lord means that we depend on Him, that we accept His authority for our lives, that we trust Him. If you're a parent... You get it. Because in the middle of the night, when they are afraid, when they wake up from a dream or whatever, our child calls on the name of their parent, right? Mom! And I wake up and go, honey, kids are calling. Uh, Dad! Why do they call? Because that's the person they trust. That's the person they depend on. That's the person they know will provide. That's the person in their life who has the answer. And that same principle goes when we call on the name of the Lord. He's the person we trust. He's the person we depend on. He's the person that provides. He's the person that has the answer. When anyone calls on the name of the Lord, they will Be saved. And I think very simply, the message of God for us today is as we call on the name of the Lord, we need to live in the joy and reality of God's presence. He's the God who says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Joel continues to look forward. We move into chapter 3. Joel says, there's going to come a time. You know, we wonder, don't you? We look around and we say, all right, you know, who's going to hold this nation or that nation into account? We have nations that are called terrorist nations. Who's going to hold them into account? God says, I'm going to take care of that. I got this. Joel begins in those days, and at that time, he's looking to weigh down the future, a future we have not yet seen. I will restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. I will gather the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And there I will put them on trial for what they did to my inheritance, my people, Israel, because they scattered my people. So God says, you, yes, I allowed it to happen, but you went too far. I am going to hold you accountable. I am going to hold you accountable, verse 4, Tyre and Sidon and Philistia. Are you repaying me for something I've done? If you are paying me back, I will swiftly and speedily return on your own heads what you have done. For you took my silver and my gold, you carried off my finest treasures to your temples, you sold people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks that you might send them far from their homeland. See, I am going to rouse them out of the places to which you sold them. And I will return on your own heads what you have done. God says, I am going to do this. So, nations, you can proclaim a war. You can prepare for war. You can rouse the warriors. You can can get all the weapons you want, verse 12 or verse 10. But notice that when God steps in, he will judge. Multitudes, verse 14, and multitudes in the valley of decision for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon will be darkened. The stars will no longer shine. The Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem and the earth and the heavens will tremble. When God speaks, everybody will know it. But for God's people, verse 16 end of verse 16, but the Lord will be a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. Joel says, God is going to judge. Now, we need to realize something. The language of judgment, the language of devastation is not coming from nation. It's coming from the Lord. You see, no nation, no matter how powerful they may think they are, can stand before the mighty God. And that's why we should never put our hope in a nation. Our hope is not in any nation. Our hope is in the person of Jesus Christ. And God is so mighty, as we just saw, when he speaks, it's like the roar of his voice causes everything to tremble. And he says, then you will know, verse 17, that I, the Lord, Then you will know that I, the Lord your God, dwell in Zion. There it is again. Then you will know that he's the Lord. So what do we do? What does God want from us? We need to live in the light of all his promises. He's promised to never leave us or forsake us. He's promised to return someday and to take us to be with him. Live in that light. Live in that confidence. Well, what does that mean? How does that look? How does that look when he talks about, you know, you're going to never again be invaded at all? And he's speaking naturally to a nation. He's speaking to a nation that was a theocracy. And so he may not be speaking to our nation, but he's speaking to those of us who call upon his name. We live in a world that is broken. Doesn't take any bit of observation to see that. In fact, you and I are broken, (coughs) We're all fully aware of our own faults and our failures. We, unless we have some sort of narcissistic personality disorder, all of us know we have failures. All of us know we've messed up. All of us know we're broken. We can look around our world. We can just look 26 miles east and see the, the devastation, the violence, be it Shootings in Chicago, or human sex trafficking, or corporate greed, or abuse, even in church denominations, and scandals, and devastation in Ukraine, and natural disasters of all kinds. That's a world. That's where we live. But I don't have to fret about that. I don't have to worry about that. I don't have to get, I don't have to freak out. See, when I live in the light of God's promises, I know and believe that God is able. I know and believe that God will do what he says he's going to do in his time. I trust that God will provide what I need daily. I trust that even when I face that which is devastating, yes, I will mourn. Yes, I will grieve. Yes, I will weep. Yes, I will struggle because I am not a robot. I'm a human being and I will have all the feels of humanity. But in the midst of my struggle, in the midst of my mourning, in the midst of my grief, in the midst of my weeping, I have this deep faith that the God of creation is the Lord my God who will never leave me or forsake me. And I think that is the message of the book of Joel. God wants us to keep our focus on him. When tragedy happens, and it will, the prophet Joel reminds me that God knows. The prophet Joel reminds me that God's aware. The prophet Joel reminds me that God is simply saying, hold on to me, I am here. And that brings me full circle to my friend, standing in front of the drills, Home Depot, aisle 14. God is too wise to make a mistake. God is too kind to do something cruel. God is too deep to have to explain himself to me. What is God saying to you today? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the prophet Joel and for his willingness to be obedient to you, to speak and to write words that were your words to your people. Thank you that your word spans time and history and can speak to us today. May we carefully listen to what you are saying to us. And we will give you the glory and the honor and the praise in Jesus' name.